And our passage comes from Matthew uh, chapter 6, and verses 14 through 15. So if you want to turn there with me, I'll read it for us. Matthew 6, 14. As you know, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and, and especially during Lent, we're focusing on that section of the Sermon on the Mount that has to do with prayer. And so uh, we've looked at the Lord's Prayer and some of the teaching that Jesus gave on how to pray. And uh, today we're going to tackle the subject of prayer and forgiveness, which Jesus teaches on. So our passage is Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I'd like to ask three questions to this text. And I will say that this is a a hard text to interpret, to apply. Uh, I think this is one that many Christians struggle with, many commentators struggle with, pastors struggle with. And so I want to address it honestly. So I'm trying to ask questions that I think all of us are asking, and and I'm really trying to answer them well. I want to answer them in a biblically consistent and satisfying way. So you will be the judge of that, of course, how well I do with that, but that's my goal. So my three questions to the text are, number one, what is Jesus teaching here? What is he saying? Let's just, let's just see what he says before we start interpreting and rationalizing it away. Now, second question, why is he teaching it? It seems to uh, put some other things in tension with it. So why is he teaching it in this way? And finally, three How can we obey this teaching? So what do we do with it? So number one, what is he teaching? Number two, why is he teaching? And three, how can we obey this teaching? Where do we get the power to actually obey this? Okay, so first, let's understand what Jesus is saying. In the Lord's Prayer, which we've prayed every Sunday during Lent, and many of us are probably praying on our own or with our families, maybe even daily, in that prayer, Jesus tells us to pray this way. He says, pray like this, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He's already connecting our forgiveness by God with our forgiveness of others who have sinned against us. Debts are sins. So he says, pray like this, Father, forgive us our sins just as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, legitimate wrong towards us. And then, just so we do not misunderstand what he means, he gives a commentary right after the Lord's Prayer. There's an added teaching by Jesus that leaves us no room to interpret it any differently. And this is our text. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, it's it's pretty clear, right? If you just read that, if you don't bring whatever theological grid or, or your understanding of Scripture with it, if you just read this passage, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus connects our forgiveness by God with our forgiveness of others. In other words, Jesus says you cannot expect God to forgive you if you refuse to forgive others. That's what he's saying. John Calvin put it this way. If we retain feelings of hatred in our hearts, if we plot revenge and ponder any occasion to cause harm, and even if we do not try to get back into our enemies' good graces by every sort of good office, deserve well of them, 
and commend ourselves to them, by this prayer we entreat God not to forgive our sins. Now, I want us to, to be very clear with what Jesus is teaching. I think Calvin is totally right. That if we go to God and we say, forgive us as we have forgiven others, and at the same time we refuse to forgive others, what we're actually saying is, God, don't forgive us. We're saying, God, you shouldn't forgive us because we're not forgiving others. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray. Now, if we pray the Lord's Prayer with an unforgiving heart, in reality, we actually ask God not to forgive us. Now, some preachers would spend the whole sermon on trying to show that Jesus does not mean what He says because it sounds like He makes God's forgiveness dependent on our forgiveness of others, which He says that. I've read commentaries that reverse what Jesus says here and teach that we are to forgive others as God has forgiven us. That's, scripture teaches that. There's no question. There's lots of other passages that talk about that, that we are to forgive others because we've been forgiven, as we have been forgiven. But this is not what Jesus says here. He's very clear. If you forgive others their trespasses against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do not change what Jesus says, and do not dismiss this teaching because it doesn't quite make sense for us. We'll try to reconcile it with the rest of Scripture as we go on, but we start by simply accepting that this is what Jesus says. And so we have to start applying that right away. Do you need to forgive someone? Because you've just prayed with me the Lord's Prayer. I'm assuming you've prayed it sincerely. I'm assuming that we actually want what God wants for us. We want to obey what He says. And then the question is, do you need to forgive someone? Are you holding a grudge against someone? Do you wish someone harm because they have offended or harmed you? Are you refusing someone's attempts to reconcile with you? They come to you, they say, please forgive me, and you say, no, or you just avoid them. Is there bitterness or resentment in your heart today? Are you angry at someone who treated you poorly? Jesus is talking about real situations in life where you have been hurt by someone. These are trespasses, debts, sins against you. You may have experienced unimaginable pain at someone's hands. Jesus is not minimizing this. They have sinned against you. It's wrong what they've done. And Jesus says, forgive them. And if there is a person that came to your mind right when we started talking about forgiveness, Jesus wants you to forgive them. If there is a person you are trying really hard not to think about right now, because you don't want to think if you need to forgive them, Jesus wants you to forgive them. If there's a person who's asking you for your forgiveness and you refuse to forgive them, Jesus wants you to forgive them. If there's a person who refuses to admit their fault, to repent or to change, 
Jesus wants you to forgive them. Now, you may not be able to reconcile with them. You may not be able to trust them, but you must forgive them. Jesus leaves no room for us here, for any nuance, anything where we would say, I don't need to forgive that person. He says, you must forgive that person. Whatever the situation is, he says, you must do that. Or your relationship with God is affected. We need to hear and accept what Jesus is saying to us so clearly here. Don't ignore it. Don't explain it away. Forgive today. Whoever you need to forgive, forgive today. Now let's ask the next, next question. Okay? Why is Jesus teaching that we must forgive others if we expect God to forgive us? Now there are two problems with this part of the Lord's Prayer, and I think these are probably the problems you're thinking about or maybe, maybe should be. One, if there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as we just heard, and this is from Romans 8, why does Jesus want us to ask God for forgiveness daily? That's the first problem, right? If there's no condemnation, I have been forgiven. We're just saying that I've been forgiven. God already forgave me. My sins have been dealt with. Jesus paid it all. If that's true, which of course it is, that's so clear in Scripture. Why does Jesus want us to pray for forgiveness daily? That's one problem. And this is why some Christians actually refuse to confess their sins. They don't. They say that's, un that's unbiblical to confess. I've been forgiven. Why should I confess my sins to God? I've been forgiven. So that's one problem. The other problem is that if by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing, it is the gift of God, as Ephesians 2 says, why does Jesus make our forgiveness of God conditional on our forgiveness of others? If our forgiveness by God is purely by grace, so it depends not at all on us, it's a gift, it doesn't depend on us, We're not, there's no condition on us, so Scripture clearly teaches in many passages, and specifically Ephesians 2. Why does Jesus make our forgiveness by God conditional on our forgiveness of others? Why does He say, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you? You see the, the two problems here? And I think any thoughtful reader of Scripture will see that right away, because you've read Ephesians, you've read Romans, you've read the whole Scripture, and, and you know about God's grace, you know about Jesus' sacrifice. You know about no condemnation. God's wrath has been dealt with. And then you come to a passage like this, which isn't the only passage like this in the Gospels. There are others where Jesus says, ask for forgiveness every day and forgive others if you want to be forgiven by God. Now, the solution, I think, to both of these problems lies in our view of God's forgiveness. Now, I want to be as careful and as nuanced, as clear as I can, because I think if we grasp what I'm saying, I think it helps us understand how this fits with the rest of Scripture. It's how we view God's forgiveness. Is it an end or is it a means? Is God's forgiveness an end in itself? This is God's goal to forgive us. This is why Jesus came. Or is it a means to something else? If God's forgiveness of our sins is an end in itself, the Lord's Prayer does not make much sense. I don't think so. If God has forgiven me, He's achieved His goal, 
He's already done everything he wanted with me. I am forgiven. It's done. There's nothing else. I've arrived. I'm here. Then why would I pray for forgiveness? Especially every day, why would I do that? In fact, it might be insulting to God if I do that. If God has achieved his goal, but I keep bringing it up again and say, but am I really forgiven? That's insulting to God. If forgiveness of sins is an end, if it's for him, it's the goal, it's the ultimate, and he got it. So some Christians look at the Lord's Prayer as only applying to those who have not been forgiven by God yet. Now you see, if forgiveness is the goal, and you've not been forgiven yet, yeah, you pray this prayer, you beg God for forgiveness, but when he forgives you, your sin has been exposed to you, you've been convicted by praying this prayer, but now God has forgiven you by grace, and you say, I don't need to pray this prayer anymore, it doesn't apply to me anymore. In fact, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to me anymore. That's just meant to convict me, to drive me to Christ, now I have His grace, now I'm forgiven, He's achieved His end, and it's done. So once they receive God's forgiveness, the Lord's Prayer is no longer relevant or applicable to them. Now, this interpretation understands forgiveness of sin as salvation. It understands it as the end goal of God's redemptive work. But what if forgiveness of our sins is not an end, but a means to something even greater? And I think this is what the Bible teaches. Let me give you some verses here. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice the logic here. Paul says, you were dead, now God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So here forgiveness is a means of making dead people alive. Very important. Sin is what kills us. Our sins must be forgiven if we are to be made alive again. We can't be made alive and still have the guilt of sin on us. So God has to forgive us to make us alive. Now look at Acts 26, 18. Apostle Paul remembers when Jesus sent him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and this is what the Lord told him. He's sending him to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me, in Christ. So forgiveness of sins here was a necessary part of transferring people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. In other words, we can't live in the light unless our sins have been dealt with. Only the forgiven can be in the light. We can't face God unless our guilt has been removed. So we can't be transferred into the domain of God, the domain of light, from darkness and Satan, unless we are forgiven. It's necessary. Let me give you another passage. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Familiar, probably, to most of us. But you are, and you are the Christians, the forgiven ones, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we used to have no relationship with God, no future with Him, no place in His kingdom, but now that we have received mercy, that's forgiveness. Mercy has been applied to our sins, we've been forgiven. Now we have become His people. We've been called out of darkness, and now we live in His marvelous light. Now all these passages, and there are many, many more, talk about God's redemptive work as having to do with transferring us from one domain into another. Light, darkness, God, Satan, freedom, slavery, it's all over the Scriptures. This language of transformation and transfer. God takes us from one place to another, from one spiritual reality to another. And that happens through forgiveness. Forgiveness has to be a part of it. God has to forgive us to move us from one state to another. Otherwise, our sins would prevent us. We can't remain in our sins and still be with God. We can't remain in darkness holding on to our guilt and shame and then still feel like we're in the light. It's impossible. So God forgives us so that He can make us alive, so that He can welcome us into the light, so He can love us, so we can be accepted into His family. So forgiveness is a means, not an end, but it's a means of transferring us into another realm of being. Colossians 1.13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, forgiveness isn't Christ, but we're transferred into His whole realm, domain of light. Forgiveness belongs there, It's part of it, but it's a means, it's not an end. It's at best a part of what we're getting with God through Christ. Forgiveness is the how we get there, but not the what. It's not the destination. God forgives us so that He can place us and keep us in His kingdom, in His family, in the realm of light, free from dominion of Satan and free from death itself. And the Lord's Prayer belongs in this realm. This is key for us to understand, that the Lord's Prayer belongs in this new realm into which we've been transferred through the forgiveness of sins. It is for those who have been transferred, delivered, and welcomed. That's who prays the prayer. Now think about it. The Lord's Prayer is a children's prayer, right? You pray, Our Father in heaven, It begins with the realization that we belong here. We belong with you. We've been transferred here. We're in your family already. And so the prayer is not for the unbeliever, the unforgiven who is begging for forgiveness for the first time. That's not for them. This prayer is for those who have been forgiven, who've been ushered into a new kingdom, ushered into a new family, and now have God as their father. And Jesus said, pray like this now. Now, because you've been changed, you've been transferred into a different realm. The Lord's Prayer is a kingdom prayer. The assumption is that we belong in God's kingdom, and this is the kind of prayer we pray if we are in God's kingdom. The Lord's Prayer prioritizes God's glory, which means it's for those who pursue God's glory and not their own. Jesus is teaching on forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer and then in the commentary following that we read makes sense 
only if we see it belonging to the, real, to the realm of life and light to which we have been restored through the forgiveness of our sins by grace. Now, I'll give you an illustration, but I want us to make sure we understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is forgiveness is not an end, but it's a means. And it's a means to a much greater restoration. It's a means to a much greater life, of which forgiveness will be a part But there are many, many other parts. There are many, many other blessings. A Christian is not just forgiven. Don't ever say that. People say that. I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. No, no, no. You're not just forgiven. Forgiven is just a little part of what God has done for you. He's done so much more for you, and He keeps doing more for you. So you're never just anything as a Christian. And so if we look at the Lord's Prayer in this light... Meaning that when we ask for forgiveness, when we think about forgiving others, we're dealing with a different life in a different realm. It starts making a lot more sense. Now let me give you an illustration. This is an image that I I have in my head when I'm thinking about this passage. And yesterday and today I'm thinking about this picture. Imagine a child, an orphan child, growing up in the slums of a terribly polluted city. Now she can barely go outside without getting very sick. The pollution is so strong that there's so much poison in the air that all she can do is just spend most of her time in the corner of her shack coughing and just taking shallow breaths through a dirty cloth to prevent at least some of the poison in the air from getting into her lungs. If she stays there, she will die. There's no question. Children don't live long in that place. The pollution is going to kill her unless someone else doesn't kill her first. One day, a rumor spreads in the slums. A wealthy benefactor has promised to take anyone who's willing to go out of the slums into a beautiful place in the country. No payment is required. No qualifications are given. Just show up at a specific place on this corner, get on the bus hired by the benefactor, and go. Now, most children do not believe the rumor. It's too good to be true. Why would anybody do that to them? Why would anybody give of their wealth, give of their home, give of their land to an orphan in the slums like them? It's too good to be true. They don't believe it. Some suspect even that the benefactor is somehow not going to keep his word at all, and he would take the children and take them somewhere where he would do terrible things to them. So they're scared. They don't trust him. But this child believes. So she gets on the bus, and in a matter of minutes, finds herself out on a beautiful farm, out in the country. The air is fresh and clean, and it feels so strange to her lungs. It is the benefactor's land. It is his house. In fact, he comes out to greet the child and the others that got on the bus, and he welcomes them into his home. They are shown to their own rooms, each given a nice, clean room. A new outfit is laid out out for this child on her bed. She is told that a healthy dinner awaits downstairs whenever she's ready. She's told that she can start attending a local school. There are other kids like her rescued from the slums she can play with and make friends with. There's even a doctor 
who's available to help her get healthier and stronger and heal some of the wounds that she had acquired in the slums. But all of that is too much for the child to take in. And so she retreats into a dark corner in her new room, closes her eyes, and takes shallow breaths through a dirty cloth she has brought with her. There's no poison in the air. She knows that. She's, she's tasted the air. It's clean and it's fresh. She knows that her new, new room is nothing like the slums she grew up in. But she can't quite figure out how to function in this new world. She knows she's been rescued. She's not fearful for her life anymore. She knows there's no danger of going outside anymore, but she can't quite bring herself to go downstairs for dinner. She will need to learn how to live differently, she thinks. To some degree, this is the experience of every Christian. Forgiveness is the bus that takes us out of the slums of sin. It brings us out. We rescue. We're delivered. Just remember the language of the verses we've read. It's a deliverance. It's salvation. It's a rescue. Somebody comes and gets us. We were dead. Now we're alive. That's how it works. There's no more danger for us if you're in Christ. There's no more danger. Now we need to learn to go outside. We've been delivered out of the poisonous air now we need to learn to breathe deeply. The Lord's Prayer and Jesus' teaching on forgiveness belong in the realm of fresh air and light. They belong to the children. They make sense in the new kingdom. So you can't pray the Lord's Prayer in the slums and apply the same logic to it. You have to pray it in the country house. Now let me now try to solve the two problems that I had posed for you. One, if there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, why does Jesus want us to ask God for forgiveness daily? No condemnation of Romans 8 means that we belong to another realm now. That's what it means. We're in the country house. When we say there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, we're saying we've been transferred, we've been delivered. We're not in the slums anymore, we're at the country house. We've been delivered. Confessing our sins daily in the realm of light now and asking God to forgive us is meant to train and teach us to live there. Every time we pray, forgive us our debts, we are reminded that we depend on God. We depend on the benefactor. He has rescued us, and He will keep us in our new home. Asking for and receiving forgiveness from God daily trains our lungs to breathe. It teaches us that we really do belong here. Now we can live as we belong. Now we can live in this connection with God. He will continue to provide for us, and so we remind ourselves of that. Our whole lives now are based on His marvelous grace. And just as we daily rely on Him to provide for our physical needs, give us this day our daily bread, 
and we go down to dinner. We also daily rely on being accepted in his family, slum children that we are. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He says, pray like this, because if you pray like that, in the realm of light, in the kingdom, in the family, if you pray like this, you are now cultivating a relationship with your Father who has forgiven you. Confessing our sins to our Father and relying on His forgiveness, even though we've already been delivered from our guilt and penalty for our sins, helps us develop that relationship with Him. Now, this is part of the restoration that God is pursuing. God's ultimate goal is restoration for us, not just forgiveness, but restoration. And so forgiveness is a means to that, but now God is going to restore day by day His relationship with us. The end of His work is a full, deep, joyful, trusting relationship with our Father. And the Lord's Prayer and the teaching of Jesus trains us to do that. It forces us every day to see Him as our Father, to see Him as the source of grace, to see Him as, as the one who will never stop forgiving us. He will always keep us in His family. He will always provide for us. So when I pray that prayer every day, I'm reminded of that, and I'm cultivating another piece, another step in my relationship with Him. And this relationship requires our trust and our humility. So every time you pray, forgive us our debts, you're saying, I am humble before you. I trust you to take care of my sins. I can't do it myself. Daily petition for forgiveness teaches us to live in that reality. It brings that vertical restoration that is ongoing in our lives. Now the second problem. If by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing, this is a gift of God, Ephesians 2, why does Jesus make a forgiveness by God conditional on our forgiveness of others? Why does Jesus, who is so gracious to rescue us from the slums, to send the bus, take us out, we're transferred into another realm, why does he now say, forgive others if you want to be forgiven by God? Now remember our illustration. The child was not required to learn to breathe deeply without coughing before she could get on the bus. This is not a teaching for those who are in the slums of sin. It's not. Anyone longing for clean, fresh air is welcome to get on the bus and leave the slums. Everybody's welcome. No qualifications, no requirements. They didn't need to forgive others before they could get forgiveness of God to get out of the slums. But once you have been delivered, transferred to another realm, once you get to the country house, you need to learn to breathe. And by connecting our relationship with God to our relationship with others, Jesus is teaching us to breathe. He's teaching us to live in a different life. He's undoing our slum patterns. There's internal restoration that he is now concerned with. We've talked about vertical restoration between you and God, and that relationship is being built through daily communion with Him where we acknowledge our brokenness, we acknowledge our sins, we trust Him to keep forgiving us, we trust Him to love us. That's the first part, that's the vertical. Now there's internal restoration that happens when we pray this prayer, and especially when we connect forgiveness of God with forgiveness of others. 
Dallas Willard says, It's not psychologically possible for us to know God's pity for us, God's mercy for us, and at the same time be hard-hearted toward others. I think it's very insightful that he says it's not psychologically possible. Meaning that to be a whole person, you can't trust God for forgiveness and at the same time withhold forgiveness from others. You just can't do that and remain a whole person. Sin has fractured us. The Psalms uh, talks about a divided heart. And the prayer is, unite my heart. That's the prayer of the psalmist. What does he mean? He means my heart is fractured. It goes in different directions. It's divided. It's broken. But God says, now that I've rescued you from the slums, I will now heal your heart. I will bring internal restoration into you. And it comes through this teaching of connecting God's forgiveness, vertical, with our forgiveness of others, which is internal. Okay? This is what he's saying. He wants us to be healthy on the inside. Now, in our analogy of the child struggling to leave her new room, the problem is her divided heart. She's not externally limited. Nobody's stopping her from leaving the room and coming down for dinner. She's actually kind of excited about eating, healthy food, clean clothes. But she's also fearful. She's also longing for the familiar feeling of the poisonous air in her lungs. In time, she will be made whole. In time, she will live completely in the new reality of her life. She will run down for dinner without any hesitation. She will wear the clothes that have been given to her. She'll go to school. She'll play with the other children. She'll go to the doctor to get healthy in time. But at first, and it happens gradually, her heart doesn't know what's best. And so sometimes she will sit in the corner and take shallow breaths. Other times she will run outside and run and laugh because the air is so clean and fresh. We accept God's forgiveness when we begin. And yet, most of us refuse to treat others as God treats us. So Jesus says, through this prayer, through this teaching, live fully in the reality of grace. Don't fracture it. Don't separate it. Don't let your heart be broken. He says, I want to unite your heart, make it whole. And so internally, you will find restoration. Accept God's forgiveness and forgive others in the same breath. That's what he wants us to do. He doesn't want us to separate. He doesn't want us to see it differently. It's all grace. It's all forgiveness. And so if I'm forgiven by God, I'm forgiven others. So I can actually pray this prayer with all sincerity if I'm being healed by God, if I'm being restored internally. I can pray, forgive me as I forgive my debtors. And if I'm not forgiving my debtors, don't forgive me. I want to be a whole person. I don't want to be fractured. I want my heart to, to pull me in different directions. I don't want to be excited and fearful at the same time. Lord, heal me. Now, there's another element of restoration. We talked about the vertical with God. There's the internal in our own hearts. And then there's the horizontal restoration happening with others. God is not just rescuing individuals, which is why forgiveness cannot be the end. It cannot be the ultimate. It's only a means. Because God is not just forgiven people, specific individuals, He's also gathering us into a community, right? He's making for Himself a new people. The child in the country house is now part of a family. 
In the slums, she had to compete with other children and fight with them. That was her relationship with others. And she's bringing that baggage into her new life, as do we all. But now, the other kids have become her brothers and sisters. They're all living in this big house. They all have the benefactor as their father. There's plenty of food for everybody. There's no need to fight with anybody for food anymore. You don't have to compete with anybody for attention anymore. How strange it would be if they competed for food at dinner when there is no shortage of food. Now, do you see how the teaching of Jesus on forgiveness is ultimately about restoration? It is about life and light, kingdom and family. It's not a prayer for those who do not trust God and thus try to manipulate him, him and say, as I forgive others, you have seen me forgive others, now you forgive me. That's a slum prayer. But we're not in the slums anymore. We're in the country house, and so we go to him and we say, make us whole. Restore me to you. Continue to heal this relationship. Continue to heal me and my heart internally. And continue to heal my outside relationships as well. I want this grace, I want this wealth of the benefactor to affect all of me and all of my life. That's what this prayer is about. This is not a prayer for those who don't trust him, but it's a prayer for those who do trust him and who want a deeper experience and a fuller healing and restoration with him, vertically, internally, and horizontally. And now finally, the last question. How can we obey this teaching? How can we obey what Jesus is telling us here? How can we pursue forgiveness of others in particular? Now, this is not a trivial thing. And When I say forgive, and I tell you Jesus tells you to forgive, I do not take it lightly. Some of us have been hurt very, very deeply. The pain of someone's sin against us has become part of who we are in some cases. It's become part of our identity. That's how I see myself. I see myself as a hurt person, as a person who was sinned against or abused or abandoned. That's become part of me. And now Jesus says, forgive them? How can I do that? What was done to some of us is so wrong, it's so evil, it's so wicked How can anyone forgive? Well, in the slums, it is utterly impossible. But if you are a Christian, you're not in the slums anymore. You have been delivered. You've been rescued. You have been pulled out of that realm. And now that you've been transferred into a different life, these crazy things like forgiveness are actually possible to us. There's a new power that operates in your life now, and it is not like your old life. So if you look at this passage and you say, how can I forgive? What can I do to forgive? You're thinking like an orphan in the slums. But you have to come to this text, and you have to realize this is a prayer Jesus gave us, and this is a prayer we're praying with Jesus and to the Father in his power. It's not something just left up to us. We are given the power to forgive in this prayer. If you're a Christian, you've been delivered and rescued, and I have to ask you if you have been, if you are a Christian, have you been delivered? Are you still in the slums fighting for food? But if you have been delivered, you have to remember what it is that transferred you into the new realm of fresh air and healthy food and clean house. 
What happened that allowed the benefactor to send a bus for you? What happened? And the answer is the cross of Jesus. That's what happened. The cross of Jesus happened, and this is the event that transferred you. This is what changed your life. Jesus died, now you have life. Jesus went into the darkness, now you're into the light. Jesus fought Satan, now you're free from Satan's power. The one who tells us to pray, forgive us our debts, is the one who paid our debts on the cross. Colossians 2.14 tells us that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. What a wonderful passage. What a wonderful way for God to describe what happened on the cross. Jesus nailed it to the cross. He nailed the record of our debt, the legal proof that we are debtors to God and others. He nailed it to the cross and he abolished it. He took care of it. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame for me because Jesus took care of it on the cross. Now, what was actually nailed to the cross? It wasn't a piece of paper, was it? Jesus was nailed. He was pierced for our transgressions. And when that happened, our debt was nailed because our debt was taken upon himself. He became our debt. He became sin who knew no sin. And so he became the one who took the penalty. He paid it. The reason we can say our debts are forgiven is because Jesus paid them. There's nothing else to pay. Nobody can call on our debt anymore. Nobody can can call on what we owe because it's been taken care of by Jesus through his death. Jesus went into the slums of our sin. He breathed the poisonous air. He ate the rotting food from the dump. He was taken advantage of by the more, more powerful people. And he did it for us. But he did it not only to take us out of the slums, just send that bus, but also to bring us into the new house, into the new family, into the new kingdom. And now he can give us the power to live differently. And that power enables us to fill up our lungs to the fullest with the fresh air of grace and forgive. So you breathe that new clean air of Christ's forgiveness. You breathe that new, clean, fresh air of his grace. You think of the cross. You think of what he's done for you. And then as you exhale, you forgive others. Because you have that air. You have that power to use. I'll give you two quotes to finish off here. Esau Macaulay is a New Testament scholar, and he wrote about dealing with black rage. He's an African-American who's thinking deeply about the oppression, the generational oppression that his people have experienced. And as a Christian, he says, what do I do with it? How do I deal with this generational black rage? What do I do with that anger? And he says, it is only by remembering that God's forgiveness costs him something that I find the divinely given power to pay the cost of forgiveness instead of revenge. Listen to this. The sword gives birth to the sword, but the cross breaks the wheel. The cross breaks the wheel. He knows that the only way to get rid of that accumulated anger, right anger, right? 
rooted in, in real events and real pain and real oppression and real hurt. The only way to get rid of it is to remember the cross and draw from the cross the resources to not turn to revenge, but turn to forgiveness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in London in the 20th century, he said, I say to the glory of God in an utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and realize even something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I am ready to forgive anybody anything. I cannot withhold it. I do not even want to withhold it. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's not boasting. He says, this is for the glory of God. I want to testify that this is how God works in my life. He says, if I even catch a glimpse of what God has done for me in Christ, if I think the cross is real, if I feel the grace of Christ from the cross of Calvary, he says, I, I can forgive anybody anything. And we have so many stories of Christians forgiven tremendous atrocities. Tremendous harm done to them, and yet forgiving. How? How did they do that? How can we do that? By looking to the cross. By experiencing what God has done for us in Christ. By knowing, even if we just get a little bit of what He's done, if we just get a glimpse of that, that is enough. There's enough power in there to let us forgive anybody anything. 